0: This episode of PBE is sponsored by Icon Science. They're developing pioneering software such as RockDoc and iPoint, along with their other geoscience service solutions. Innovation is the heart of Icon Science's award-winning subsurface technology for geoprediction. Joint Impedance and Facies Inversion help customers unlock superior outcomes in both unconventional and conventional reservoirs, while iPoint provides big data solutions. For more information on geoprediction and data solutions, please contact Icon Science America's office at 713 914 0300 or email info at iconscience.com.
1: Three, two, one, let's go!
0: Skippo, we are here
1: again. We are live. I am the host of the Permian Basin Experience podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by my co-host Skips. Uh, we have a special treat for every listener, as we were getting some feedback saying, "You know, are you going to have any engineers or any kind of rock physics and things about putting cracks in rocks and the importance of that in our industry?" And uh, and we finally we finally made it happen. Perry's relationship, obviously, with the show and uh, and reaching out to just a world class world-renowned, uh, very special treat for this show, and, and one that we think is going to be uh, legendary and historical for the PBE podcast.
0: 100%. First ever non-geo on the show, first and foremost. Right. And not only that, the man himself. But, but before we get to that, we have someone back in the studio with us right now. p Dog yo coming in hot from houston come on <laughs> he's back and he's live. hey on. you look better it
1: looks like you put on some weight like you've been lifting you've been Dude, eating well thank you i've been lifting how, <laughs> how excited are you to be Dude, it's amazing to back be back in the studio come on man you brought a hailstorm with you i don't know if you realize Dude, that i mean yeah. i
2: missed it so that's good for me right
1: sheesh what's going on with crit- your facial hair Hey yeah, I went with the. Dude, uh, you look
2: like a car salesman who just sold two cars without ev- ever meeting the customer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's how good my 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 goatee is. I sell cars. Dude, amazing. even amazing. <laughs> we are more excited for your return to the Permian, and uh, and see what you do, man. It's, you're going to have a, a successful career with anything you do, and, and Icon Science should be very excited to have uh, Perry representing them and being a part of that that company it's exciting to do uh, to watch that happen as friends and uh, companions uh skips man so what's the latest dude you got symposium tomorrow you're gonna give a presentation you're giving two presentations and a poster talk we're gonna make the dream work tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> a lot of
0: caffeine <laughs> And we're right. just gonna we're just gonna chug through it. The so, whole industry's yeah.
1: gonna see there. Okay, so what we know about Lev, or the only thing I know is that he has the best-selling book coming out of SEG for the last two years running. Mm-hmm. The best book coming out of SEG, the most pu- the most purchased book out of SEG. That's that's an incredible stat. Uh, obviously, something very important to our industry yeah. for all operators as they're trying to un- unlock the unconventional play mm-hmm. or or whatever they're doing. Even conventional, it sounds like it's uh, it's having an effect. And with that said. Perry, we wanna pass the mic to you to make a formal introduction.
2: Dude, it is my honor to introduce our guest today. He's a world renowned rock physicist. Uh, He's worked for nine years at the Stanford Rock Physics Lab, and he is currently a research professor at U of H. He was part of the world's deepest well-drilled in Russia. So we'll definitely talk about that with him. Definitely. He has his own consulting company. It's called Seismic Petrophysics LLC. He is an expert in rock physics, seismic petrophysics, and he's an expert in geomechanics. So definitely going into the realm of engineering with him. And he has recently, like you said, the, his S.E.G. book that was the number one selling book in the last two years. So without any further ado, Dr.
1: Levernick. Wow. 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 Sir, it is an absolute honor, like Perry said, to have you here. Thank you, guys. I'm... Uh, very pleased to be here to wrap up that whole introduction what is your total experience as far as the the operations of drilling a well into the subsurface let's just go as simple as that not hydrocarbon geothermal anything just your your experience of drilling wells into the subsurface and trying to make sense of it
3: well it started in uh, 1973 believe it or not Uh, I was engaged in a super deep drilling project in the Soviet Union, uh, which is called the Kola Super Deep Drilling Project. The idea was to penetrate about 15 kilometers of the upper crust and uh, uh, penetrate the uh, seismic discontinuity, primarily surface seismic reflections reflections that were uh, identified at about seven kilometers What was the total seven kilometers, the total
1: vertical depth exactly on this? Well,
3: the total, the total vertical depth is still unbeatable It's still the world record. It stands at 12,000 and a half kilometers, which is close to 41,000 feet. 41,000
1: feet of drilling. A it was of, nine... Lots of money wasted by this. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I don't think so. That is a unbelievable record. <clears throat> you drilled for how many years? I think nine years is the uh,
3: No, it took uh full 17 years to penetrate the 12 and a half kilometers. Well, don't forget <laughs> that uh, the well was fully cored and uh, the core recovery was about 70%. So. The core library generated by this own well uh, occupied the five-story building, <laughs> and it's still there in the north.
0: It's it's uh, its own core library. It's, it's, core library. it's the core library. It's a five-story
3: <laughs> building by itself. Wait, you cored the entire well? Cored and logged, and the idea was to find out what could be the plausible geological interpretation of those reflection seismic data. So those seismic reflections, uh, they were followed by a refraction survey and they identified the body wave velocities of about 6.5, 6.6 kilometers per second that uh, geologists typically attribute to basaltic compositions. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, the well showed everything upside down. For seven kilometers from the top to seven kilometers, we penetrated proterozoic basalts and then we started drilling through the migmatites and granitic gneisses formations of Archean Archean age, age. So the well never fulfilled the promise of to penetrate the top of the
1: basaltic layer. Mm-hmm. What the heck? And that's <laughs> why I'm saying
3: a total waste of total waste. Of no, 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 no. I so want no. the information, <laughs> right?
1: Walk me through the five story building, and <laughs> <laughs> I will find something of interest. I when you pit, okay, so you hit Archean granite at seven kilometers, and you drill for another... Five and a half kilometers through those boring Archean grises. Did it change? Did the the general color or composition of the granite change with depth?
3: Yes, it does, uh, because those granites are very heterogeneous. Uh, They have uh, intrusions, they have metamorphic rocks, like gneisses. Right. Mm-hmm. Each one of those and things will different. Ho- uh, they also have some dikes, which were also metamorphosed, the basaltic dikes. Did you hit the- any shales? Uh, no shales. <laughs>
1: Did you hit <laughs> any sandstones?
3: Uh, well, the sandstones were uh, penetrated in the upper proterozoic section, but those sandstones were zero porosity. They are totally cemented, so they are like tombstone mm-hmm. sandstones. Much worse than your... Uh, Delaware
1: and uh, Midland Basin sandstones. Much worse. (laughs) I don't even like that. the fact that we're on the same scale as (laughs) that. (laughs) That is an incredible operation. The idea was, for you in particularly, was to understand how seismic rays are reflecting off of this different rock and and what was changing um, Yeah, with amplitude and and density and, and how our tools at the time, which was this is in the 70s? Yes, it was. Uh, I was so there from
3: '73 to '84 when I defended my PhD based on the materials generated by the Colwell. Uh and oh, wow. uh, the idea to uh, put together a PhD in rock physics there from the very beginning in early career was to try to interpret those seismic reflections from the point of view of physical properties of rocks, mm-hmm. seismic properties such as density, compression and shear wave velocity and velocity right. ratio. And so what we found uh, was uh, 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 quite a surprising result that the seismic reflectivity, uh, while we understand, is related to differences in acoustic and shear impedances, it can also be related to things like uh, attenuation, things like uh, a different stratigraphic filtering uh, by the seismic, uh, waves propagating through the earth and so there's a lot of complexities in the whole issue but uh, the, the quintessential conclusion was that the primary cause of uh, any seismic reflectivity as is always the case is the contrast in uh, acoustic and shear impedances of the
1: rocks mm-hmm. that's across the, the interface the change in the seismic wave as it penetrates to the rock Relative to the change of the next different type of rock that it comes across, that's exactly right. So when I, when I imagine the seismic <clears throat> cross section that you were looking at before drilling the well, because you guys shook across this area, got an image back and said, "Okay, we expect them, it hit the Moho," which is an insane com- like a conversation to even have. No, we, we never <laughs>
3: expected to hit the Moho to start okay. to start with. We were hoping to hit the the boundary between the granitic and the basaltic layer of the crust, which is typically c- referred to as Conrad discontinuity, I, I think Conrad, Mr. Conrad, is an Austrian uh, geophysicist. Uh, oh wow! Uh, so what we never hoped to get the, to the Machau, okay, okay. which <laughs> was about thirty-five
1: kilometers deep in this area. Wow. Okay, so you have an image, and what I'm env- envisioning in this image is that you see some competent reflectors maybe down to 3 kilometers or 5 kilometers, and then it gets completely jacked up because it's considered basement. Is that not true?
3: Well, uh, that's true, but uh, what the uh, oil and gas geologists and geophysicists refer to as a basement was there in the Kola Peninsula from the very top? So there's no oh, no okay. there's no no basement. Yeah. Everything is basement. <laughs> so from the very top, we're going through the basement. Okay, and, uh, it's not a sedimentary so we, we, basin. So no sedimentary okay. rocks <laughs> of uh, a post-Proterozoic uh, stratigraphy.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Is there any cross-sections of this? Can we see an image of what that seismic looks like? Is that public?
3: Yeah, it's a public book, actually. There's a monography and uh, several monographies. We're going to bring them up. I'm a co-author of one of them, even though I was a a young guy there. So, Mm -hmm. well, somehow they decided to include me there.
0: Wow, I'm thankful for that.
1: I bet you're doing something right, obviously.
0: Have they by chance gone through and reshopped those surveys through the years and try to tie back in that well data and that core data with, you know, as technology is getting better and, you know, acquisitions are getting better and we're actually understanding these parameters? This is
3: a very good question. Uh, Unfortunately, no. The answer is no, because the Soviet Union, as you remember, well, you are too young to remember, (laughs) but uh, it did collapse in uh, uh, about uh, 89, 90 Mm -hmm. time. Frame that's a, exactly right. Uh, the time frame where the borehole actually could not be deepened anymore mm-hmm. for different technical reasons, and so there's no money to follow up. And uh, uh, more even more so, uh, the project is in a very, very bad shape, uh, was in a bad shape yeah. beginning in uh, early 90s, and right now it's just a sham that. Uh, the whole borehole site and the whole research institute erected around the borehole site is is a bunch of garbage right now. So wow. it's just a, a shame.
0: That's a shame. So much data. I mean, wow. especially now. It's with... so
3: much data, but it's a data that is not related to oil and gas. That's it's true. related to just a general understanding of the
1: seismology as a science. So I would argue, just for a second, that it has essentially all to do with our understanding of the oil and gas system, because the oil and gas system is a, is a product and a byproduct of how the earth became what it is and how we understand it. Where did biology come from? Where did life come from? Where did all that come from? That's geology. And we are geologists trying to understand this earth and why that rock is filled with hydrocarbon and not water. I would argue that what you were seeing in that seven kilometers of arcane granites would be fascinating to look at in the sense of what, where are we in the arc magnetism that created all that? Because we know subduction plates and all that stuff. You guys were doing this without the idea and the, the front lines of plate tectonic interpretation and its importance to recycling of rocks and, and, and creation of our planet. Well... True,
3: uh, but uh, there's almost no connection to uh, the uh, plate tectonics and what we tried to do there in this uh, super deep drilling project because oh. the project was from the very beginning uh, situated in a very very ancient and totally tectonically inactive uh, Baltic Shield, which is kind of similar to Canadian Shield, Brazilian okay. Shield, mm-hmm. the Indian. Uh, all those rocks that are considered just a provenance to a geologist that yeah. is looking at sedimentary uh, depositional mm-hmm. environments and uh, sedimentary settings. So what are the minerals that could be there, like quartz and feldspars well, and sure. uh, hornblends and micas and and sure. clays? But as far as oil and gas, you know, you're know, you probably more interested in things What's that's going on with the boom around the area where you are right now. Oh, so yeah. we're talking about the unconventional shale gas, and mm-hmm. that's where my expertise uh, actually primarily uh, comes from, uh, starting from nine years at Stanford University was when I was pioneering an organic shale project, a rock physics project there. Uh, at Stanford. The data set. Yeah. What was Yeah.
0: What was the data set? What well, the, the data
3: set was basically contributed to all the sponsors of the project. So there was a bunch of Stanford project mm-hmm. sponsors at that time. It's much less now these days. But uh, so we had benefits of having very fresh core samples and very preserved core samples, uh, which were recovered from formations such as Bucking and shale and mm-hmm. Woodford shale and Eagle Ford. Uh, Marcellus, uh, and even uh, some prolific formations, uh, source rock formations uh, worldwide, such as Kimmeridgean Shale in the North Sea, mm-hmm. and uh, Bajanov Shale in uh, Western Siberia, which is basically the source rock for all these vast reserves of oil and gas in Western Siberia and Russia.
1: Mm.
0: Wow, that is... So there was
3: a pretty <laughs> comprehensive data set to That's start source with. Rock.
0: That is that is f- fascinating. So. When you're looking at all this source rock, what were, so kind of going back into the rock physics of this, what was the biggest thing that you could use in rock physics to differentiate between these different source rocks, between the Woodford, whether it was Oklahoma or Texas or the Bakken? Well,
3: there's a one common theme that goes through all these formations, right? And it's a kerogen, which mm-hmm. is a solid organic matter that uh, uh, originated... As a, a, a bunch of uh, semi soft sapropels in uh, uh, ocean or lacustrine basins, mm-hmm. and then f- mm-hmm. transformed into a real solid organic material. We refer to that a material as kerogen. And when it goes through the stages of thermal maturation, it uh, transforms, the physical properties of it transform, and it also starts to cook. And when it cooks, it starts to produce. Bubbles inside of it, which are typically hydrophobic, which are not filled with uh, or brine or pre- pre- original uh, water uh, mm-hmm. uh, brines uh, in the rock. And they are replaced by uh, hydrocarbons, such as oil and gas. And so right now we are looking at the products of all this transformation, process, and mm. shales such as Wolfcamp and Avalon mm-hmm. uh, in the Permian and Delaware Basin are the products of that sitting in oil window. There are other shales which have a uh, much higher degree of transformation, such as Marcellus Shale, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, and, uh, and they also have very, very significant diversity among them, so they have some of you, you're probably well aware of that, so some mm-hmm. of those shales are not really shales, they are like marls or limestones. Yeah. La Luna Formation in Venezuela is basically a limestone with about 20-25% kerogen concentration in it, so it's extremely prolific. Uh,
0: So is it a a limestone or is it dolomitized as well? Mm -hmm. Uh,
3: It's a slightly dolomitized uh, limestone, but it's very rich in kerogen. And you're in the same kerogen that we find in the shales? Yes, uh, it's the same material, same organic material, and has its own porosity, and so what we're all after... Mm-hmm. As whatever, you're geologists, geologist, engineers. Uh, a and porosity. It's a carriage and porosity that we want to find.
1: No, so I wanna want to. Fi- I want to find a rock that's currently generating hydrocarbon. Where I put one wellbore in it, and I just produce <laughs> oil and gas forever and uh, it never declines. That's yeah. what I want.
3: And that that may happen in conventional reservoirs, such as Prudhoe Bay, for example. Uh, there are prolific oil fields discoveries, uh, like for example, by uh, an employee, uh, my first employer in the oil uh, and and gas business, Arco Oil and Gas. We struck oil in Alaska, Prudhoe Bay, and then mm-hmm. Kuparak. Those are enormous by uh, their size, and mm-hmm. so you can probably produce those for 100 years and without almost no depletion to them,
1: very gradual yeah. depletion. So I want to draw just... Uh, sorry, go ahead. You had something else you want
3: to... It's not going to happen in, uh, in the Permian Basin. I, I understand that uh, the core... Reco- uh, the the, uh, the higher carbon recoveries, oil and gas recoveries in the wells that you guys drill here uh, only 5%, and uh, yeah, they typically right. extinct
1: within within a year or so. Right. That's the fight that we're all fighting. That is it. That's right. the bottom line. And the super majors are coming back into the basin hoping, is what I think. I think they are hoping and praying as they come back into this basin that they realize if somehow in some way we can get better than 5%, say double, triple, quadruple, it's some crazy idea, the CEO's like all right, all you guys have to do is go from 5% to 30%, figure it out, how long is it going to take you? And there's a technical guy in the room going, I have no idea, but give me the chance, I'm going to figure it out, and I'm going to give you a reservoir that we can get now 30% at some point in time. And Chevron and ExxonMobil's going, all right, we're going to just kind of blow a ton of money and time until you figure that out because it's going to get recovered at one point at some point in the future we're going to get to that 30 or 50 or 60 percent recovery factors in this stuff and it was all worth it but right now it looks like a terrible investment in my opinion it looks like sheva or Oxidarko (laughs) is a terrible investment because there is no longevity in this you have a five percent recovery factor And they know they're destroying the pressure and permeability in this rock when they put a wellbore in it and they put a frack away that they have no idea what it's doing. They kind of have an idea of how it's going to break and if it's going to allow it to break and how much pressure you need to put on that rock to make it break. But what is it actually doing? And the connectivity and the producibility of all this stuff and the longevity is a nightmare in the unconventional game. It is.
3: It is. And I hope that uh, it can be solved, but I don't... It will be. I'm not... I'm not uh, as optimistic as many people as far as like going to 30% recovery or or higher. Mm -hmm. Even if you push the envelope from five to 8%, that would be a significant achievement in my book. So one of the uh, means to do that is to uh, maintain the the energy of the reservoir, the overpressure Mm -hmm. that was there from the very beginning, and be very careful with this overpressure, kind of realizing that it's a main source of uh, uh, propping the fractures open, and cracks open, and exposing the higher volume of the intrinsic kerogen porosity to those crack and fracture systems. So So that uh,
0: that inherent pressure-dependent permeability that we get with these reservoirs, when we initially frack them, you feel like that, plus the kerogen porosity and permeability, that's what's going to get us maybe to that 8%.
3: That is my understanding as a a rock physicist, Mm -hmm. but Definitely not a reservoir engineer, <laughs> because I'm not sure what would it involve as far as res- reservoir engineering or completion techniques mm-hmm. to, to get implemented. But that's my understanding in general. So you, the better the better overpressure is, the better chance to produce the reservoir with the better uh, recovery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, you mentioned kerogen, and kerogen is a very strange beast. Here's what I understand about kerogen, and it's a very simple drawing, so I feel like we can articulate this to the listeners, that all I'm doing is drawing a square, and then I'm drawing a tiny little square in the bottom right corner of that first square. That is where the hydrocarbon organics is, and the rest of the square, which is 99% of the piece of kerogen, is actually inorganic. That doesn't break down. That is a—if a, a, you take pressure and heat and apply that to a piece of kerogen, that never breaks down. What happens is this releases things into the system and out of itself. Well, it's like the door of the kerogen. Conceptually,
3: uh, conceptually, and just very schematically, that might be an adequate description, but uh, the volumetrics are definitely not the way you described it. Because the amount of— uh, of volumetric kerogen in some shales, let's say I'll give you an example from Avalon. Let's say you have an average Avalon shale with about five to six percent TOC, that typically amounts to about 15 percent volumetric kerogen content. And so mm. uh, fifteen wow. percent is yeah. not is not a minuscule amount. Yeah. And so <laughs> the, per, the the nanoporosity of this kerogen this 15% volumetrically of the rock Mm -hmm. could be as high as 25, 30, 35%. So it might be very high, especially in the oil window. Mm. What happens in immature rocks, we pretty understand. So there's no microporosity, no nanoporosity in the kerogen as soon as the rock is thermally immature. But as soon as it goes into the oil window, those bubbles gets generated either in the solid kerogen or mm-hmm. the secondary products of the solid kerogen, the solid bitumen. Uh, and so you end up with not insignificant uh, effective or like oil and gas saturated porosities in these rocks. That's what makes them very attractive. So Unfortunately, that doesn't contribute to the permeability because many of those micropores are not quite connected.
0: Right. Okay, that was what I wanted to ask. How does that volumetric calculation than work with permeability? Like, if the larger your volumetrics, are you getting better microfractures and better permeability? Well,
3: the larger the the volume of kerogen, Mm -hmm. the larger the uh, storage capacity of the rock. So Mm -hmm. the larger amount of oil and gas can be stored in this rock, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Undisputed fact. Yeah. (laughs) Well, permeability is a different beast. So the permeability is typically on a nano Darcy level here. So that's what makes those reservoirs unconventional, as you will appreciate as geologists, right? So in order to make them produce at least a small amount of oil, you need to open them with an open fractures. And sometimes people believe that if you just propagate in one stage, you propagate one uh, single hydraulic fracture, that is going to do the job. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's all interactive process between the, uh, s- the tectonic settings, uh, stress settings, overpressure, and the amount of additional energy that you provide to the rock, uh, stressing and straining it through the uh, hydraulic stimulation process. So you induce a lot of new fractures, mm-hmm. uh, which used to be dead and dormant, mm-hmm. uh, some of them mineralized and uh, totally not producible. But uh, if you uh, strain them to an extent, they can reopen and they provide a much more significant opening uh, to the conduits uh, uh, that are generated by the hydraulic fracture itself. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very, very complex uh, stimulated rock volume. And the whole idea of this stimulated rock volume is how to define it. You yeah. know, like, and what are the means? Sometimes people believe that the best way to define it with the micro seismic. Uh, so, but but the micro seismic itself is very highly... Um, I feel like in, we're, in, we're figuring in, that out in, now in, as in well. In an uninterpretable uh, thing yeah. Yeah. To, uh, to, to, to do. Uh, and so uh, if you have a let's say, micro seismic focal mechanisms distributed in the 3D, you know where they come from in time. It's much more difficult to know where they come from distance-wise, to Mm -hmm. triangulate amongst them. Uh, In order to do that, you need to know exactly what is the velocity anisotropy in this shale is, because the velocity anisotropy causes uh, waves propagating at different directions with respect to the bedding plane to propagate at different velocities. Mm -hmm. And that creates different time distance relationships naturally. And that's why uh, interpretation of the micro seismic is is still a a big, big issue.
1: Yeah, very
0: difficult. It's still really, really hand wavy. I know our our old VP of engineering, Uncle Charles, he wouldn't discuss well explaining micro seismic, it would be imagine you're walking down an old hallway and you know in a house and you're stepping on the floor where are you actually hearing the cracks you're not hearing them where you're stepping you're hearing them at the wall right? sure so how are so you're making an assumption now that that fracture propagated all the way out there right it's like eh, right. Uh. right right that's right. exactly right
1: <laughs> so let's uh let's stick to that unconventional problem let's <laughs> stick to are a, a basic
0: understanding oh we got another drawing yeah <laughs> a, okay. oh that's a complex one uh, <laughs> i won't be able to solve it without a couple of glasses of red wine
1: <laughs> <laughs> dr Burnett, we're gonna give it a try so m- okay so my understanding i have not seen a ton of data and that is not a shock to anybody but i have seen some data and it's been of the bone spring and the wolf camp and these world-class reservoir targets in the Delaware Basin. And when you look at this stuff with as much resolution as we can get from, say, rotary sidewall plugs, whole core if you can, and certainly an image log, you can clearly see the complexity of organic-rich, kerogen-rich, TOC-rich zones that could be as thin as a few inches or thick as a few feet. And that's usually interbedded with some really silty or like fine grain sands that seem to have limestones or limestones uh dolomites maybe um that usually has the permeability and the the porosity that an engineer would say okay that's going to deliver to the wellbore the other stuff is it doesn't have the natural k relationship for it to generate anything into our wellbore to make a difference at the tanks at the right. surface so what what i drew is a, an elaboration of our understanding of kerogen so i have that square with the small square and the squiggly lines <laughs> and this zone are the rock that's made of, of mostly kerogen which we can see rocky valve paralysis you can now do it with smoker's equation with petrophysical modeling i mean it's pretty easy to see where you have toc versus non-toc is right. certainly if you have an fmi log right the X's are the zones at which have these little tiny laminated layers of that silty layer that the engineers would say, there's your deliverability. If I gave you $10 million and a package <laughs> of rock that was 400 feet thick, so we have 100 feet of silty layers, we have 100 feet of kerogen rich, packed with kerogen, right? Uh, high TOC, and then another layer 100 feet below that of the silty layer, and then below that is another world-class looking source rock that's 100 feet thick. Where are you drilling your wellbore, and how are you fracking it, and specifically how are you getting those hydrocarbons into the bore that we made? that's about four and a half inches around in diameter, that's allowing the hydrocarbons to the surface. Where are you landing in this diagram? How much money are you you giving? I'll give you 20 million. (laughs) (laughs) million. (laughs) You can put any completion you want on this thing. I wanna know where you wanna land and how you're fracking it. With $20 million, uh,
3: I'm gonna hire a qualified group of specialists and we're gonna conduct uh, a pilot experiment, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Easily. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're gonna complete it in uh, uh, more or less permeable sandstone okay. versus uh, carriage and reach. So you're gonna do
1: vertical shale. tests. You're gonna drill yeah, vertically. No, the vertical tests and then Chum, and yeah, Chum.
3: right. And uh, and then do uh, uh, several just the vertical completions and just just to test. Okay. Uh, maybe run uh, defeat uh, d- feed tests sure. to find out what That's the stress distribution is. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the horizontal? principal stress profile is right. in this well, right. where the stress minima is, right. are, and where the potential uh, arrest zones for uh, the hydraulic fracture propagations. So I'd like to see the stress profile, I'd like to see a porosity and permeability, sure. and I would like to see uh, uh, the, uh, the brittleness of these rocks, the it's differential uh, brittleness uh, between the <laughs> organic shales, silts, and the carbonates.
1: Interesting, you brought that's a comprehensive.
3: Uh, I'm uh, I'm pretty positive that uh, many super majors are doing pretty much the same thing these days. Yep, mm-hmm. I would say the same. Uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not positive that they do because they no, never publish. Oh yeah, and right. so we really don't right. know what's going on. Yes. Right, yeah, everything's
0: okay. Held right next to their chest. Yeah, it this is. is mine.
1: Okay, so you have successfully talked an investor me yep. into spending twenty million dollars <laughs> yes. on a vertical well, <laughs> right. and I'm like, okay. Down. We are, we are in this. Yes. You have all the data back from those wells, and now you have to make an economic decision. Your first well, you have to land it, and it has to be economic. Based on your expectations of the hypothetical situation <laughs> and hypothetical results that you have in your mind, which are far more comprehensive than what I have in mine, where are you going to land? 7,500 foot lateral, put a frack away. Every two hundred feet, you can put a stage. Well,
3: it all depends on uh, what I find in those layers. You know wow. how much how much kerogen I have. I would say how, people w- how would much, stay away how much from that. People people stay away from. It. I
1: would say people would stay away from putting their wellbores in that soft kerogen. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, it has I, no permit It has I, no deliverability. How do you talk an engineer to land their wellbore into something that does not have permeability and porosity that they expect to deliver that hydrocarbon? How do you do well, that? Well,
3: you, you, but those wells don't have uh, micro permeability; they definitely have nano permeability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so as soon as you frac them, the natural fractures in those rocks will reopen, and so you open the whole system in right. a much more effective way, in efficient way, yeah. to the borehole uh, from which you're producing. Yep. And so, uh, for instance, how do they complete in the shales like Marcellus, which don't have those carbonates and sands intermingled with the shales? They complete them in uh, in uh, in the kerogen zones.
1: Okay, so now and we're going. They to... They like still
3: a... produce a lot of gas from.
1: Okay, them. so here's a Poisson's and and uh, what's the other guy? <laughs> Poisson Young's. and Young's Young's modulus, Young's modulus <laughs> problem. <laughs> right. Uh, the kerogen rich zones in this stuff are not happy with you putting proppant in them and ex- and having an expectation that that proppant going to hold a this problem. stuff up. That's the uh, problem. That's right.
3: If you have a significant amount of soft organic matter. Which we uh, the propant pro, pro, prop embedment might be the problem. That's definitely a completion problem. So you probably would need to think about the uh, different propants, a uh, different amount of propants, mm. uh, different uh, ways to stimulate. Mm. You know, uh, but uh, I would not brush away completion in high kerogen zones right away uh, in favor of those. Uh, let's say slightly more permeable sandstones. Right. Unless, okay. unless I find from this $20 million worth investigation <laughs> that uh, those sandstones may have reasonable porosity of say 10, uh, 15% and the permeability of say, one micro-Darcy on that order yeah. and the oil saturation of 50, 60%. Sure. In that case, it's totally different story. So I'm comparing now uh, conventional reservoirs with unconventional reservoirs. And so I would rather uh, employ conventional strategy to complete (laughs) rather than unconventional. Yeah, we can model that a little easier. (laughs) Uh,
2: Okay, no, I'm following. I have a question. Yeah. So what's the best way for you to visualize this data in terms of rock physics? In which elastic domain would you work?
3: Well, the rock physics is, uh, is a science that allows you to do a lot of different connections. It allows you to understand the brittleness. It allows you to understand how to interpret the uh, inversion seismic data, Mm -hmm. how to propagate uh, the uh, results obtained in 1D models around the borehole to 3D volumes uh, in the field. Mm -hmm. And so uh, rock physics is an integral part of the inversion process. So if, uh, if you are thinking or already doing in the process, of doing the inversion of seismic data in terms of uh, acoustic and shear impedances or uh, acoustic impedance and the velocity ratio, the Poisson ratio, Mm -hmm. you must be thinking in rock physics terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise, this is just an exercise in futility and you're not achieving the goal that you are uh, uh, spending the big bucks to achieve.
0: You got a a lot of fun colors on a screen. That's really all you get. That's exactly right. Because I, I remember Dr. Verma first day of QI, he was saying when we're calcu- or when we're doing inversion, always do your cross plots beforehand. before. Before, yeah. yeah, because that will help guide you to you the You've got to have some separation yeah. between your data points. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Another, a, a, another prong uh, uh, for rock physics uh, in, in, uh, application is geomechanics, of course. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you understand, the geomechanics operates in the world of stresses. Mm-hmm. So as we know now, the rock physics properties of the rock sometimes in this type of uh, uh, fields, unconventional fields, define the stress distributions. So very often we run such a, like a, a model which is typically referred to as a uniaxial strain model, mm-hmm. right? So if you know the uh, the overburden stress, you know the Poisson ratio, you know the beyond modulus, and you know the uh, overpressure or pore pressure in the reservoir, you should be able to constrain your least horizontal principal stress. Well, uh, in order to really find out and what is the relation, the relationship between say. Uh, 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 Poisson ratio uh, Velocity ratio And uh, and the rock properties such as Kerogen content, clay content Quartz content, you need to understand What are the rock physics relationships That, that are involved here So mm-hmm. that's why the rock physics is important
1: Perfect 100% the rock physics are important um, Now how about The idea of sweet spot expansion Using rock physics from Petrophysical analysis which we've Certainly talked about the heterogeneity of kerogen, which is on like a microscopic level, SEM level, and its influence on a macro level. So we're already destroying the resolution of the vertical resolution and horizontal resolution of, of the log data. However, we can, we can map that. We can, we can quantify those changes, and we can make some assumptions and, and calibrate those logs to core and start trying to fight that fight. Assuming you feel good about that fight, We put it into the seismic data and now an operator is saying we have 200 square miles of lease and our seismic data is showing that only 50 square miles of this acreage is of the sweet spot. What is that sweet spot to you? What does that look like and what is that? Well, if I knew that. The answer to that question,
3: (laughs) I would be in a much better shape. (laughs) You look uh, like you're in phenomenal shape. I'm in good good shape. I'm not complaining at all. Uh, But uh, but I would be in a much better, because I would be having much more fun. Uh, Because I'm still pretty agnostic about uh, what constitutes the best sweet spot in the unconventional shale reservoirs. We just have touched uh, the issue in the previous question with you about uh, the conventional versus unconventional Uh, uh, lithologies, Uh, so uh, uh, talking about the seismic uh, resolution and uh, identification of the sweet spot from the seismic, uh, to me, there are two main drivers. If you are in a pure unconventional organic shale setting, such as, for example, uh, Marcellus Mm -hmm. or Woodford, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have a luxury to consider completions in sandstones with some oil saturation or the carbonates with oil saturation. So you have to complete inside of the shale, mm-hmm. right? So all you need to know is the amount of TOC and the maturity of this organic matter. Mm-hmm. So are you in the oil window or in a gas condensate window or in a dry gas window? Mm-hmm. So that's what you need to know. Can and seismic that and to... Yes, okay. seismic can definitely help in this respect. With maturity? It, uh, even with maturity, wow. definitely with the TOC, but we should be able to see zones that are, are oil-saturated versus zones which are dry gas-saturated, sure. for example.
1: Yeah, I get the... the f- of course, the
3: transition would be a difficult thing to catch, but, uh, but I'm pretty optimistic about it compared to, uh, the, in principle, that I'm pretty agnostic about uh, my total understanding of what, what is the bright spot as far as unconventional yeah. shale mm-hmm. reservoirs. To me, me, that's a TOC content in the maturity.
2: What are your views on applying AVO techniques to unconventional reservoirs? Well, I have several
3: examples uh, that I'm presenting tomorrow, and actually one of them uh, actually comes from the Delaware Basin well uh, that I was looking uh, at. Let's throw her uh, up. Right. Uh, So what you can see there is uh, I believe this is an interval where you have a, uh, a high TOC zone in Avalon shale. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, an upper Avalon uh, hot shale, and then uh, there's a carbonate layer in between. Uh, and you can definitely see that this carbonate layer is defined by the strong acoustic impedance contrast, positive reflection there, which is a blue elephant reflection.
0: And then you go to, uh, and
3: then you go to- Never heard a, that
0: before, I like that.
3: And then you go to the red trough uh, seismic reflection uh amplitude uh data uh uh from the synthetic point of view and you can definitely see that when you employ the anisotropic reflectivity mm-hmm. equation for AVO you start to see a significant uh change in amplitude look at this uh, uh the upper uh, horizon which is basically upper uh, Avalon horizon which shows a dramatic a uh, reduction in amplitude strength with mm-hmm. an offset angle from zero to about 40 degrees mm-hmm. uh, and so that's where the rock physics becomes very important because if you if you ignore the anisotropy here and just pretend that like 20 25 years ago people did uh, all the reflection seismology and uh, and uh, all the modeling of the 1d data using an assumption of isotropic Earth uh, you won't see that effect, the SIVO effect, which is which is definitely there, and it's definitely related to the kerogen content in the Avalon itself. And you can see that the TOC, are some core data in this well. Uh, so uh, uh, it shows the TOC goes from 8% to 5%. So it's pretty significant amount of organic matter in this Avalon mm-hmm. shale. And uh, uh, on the, at least on the log scale, I don't see a significant amount of... Uh, Heterogeneity in the sense that we've discussed mm, with yeah. those conventional lithologies interlayered. There, most of it is just a, uh, an organic-rich unit, uh, and then below it, of course, you go to uh, the formations which you guys, uh, I guess, you refer to as a Bone Spring, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and interlayers of carbonate beds and uh, and sandstones, and we can definitely do. Uh, we can we can make sense out of the uh, uh, seismic reflectivity and specifically AVO analysis trying to incorporate those carbonate beds as opposed to sandstones because they have totally different velocity and Poisson ratios which are main drivers for the AVO signatures to start with.
2: Well, what What's the significance of these Thomson parameters epsilon and delta? Uh,
3: well the significance of uh, anisotropy parameters for transversely isotropic rock is uh, that uh, the uh, epsilon defines the amount of P-wave anisotropy, so basically it's uh, how fast the velocity, how fast the wave propagates normal to bedding Mm -hmm. as compared to the parallel to bedding, for example, right? Yeah. And as geologists, you've seen the examples of these formations being highly laminated, highly uh, foliated, and, uh, and bedding controlled with all those fabric elements. And so you can appreciate Mm. that the amount of anisotropy that we see there uh, is quite dramatic. Yeah. and needs to be defined. Uh, The uh, anisotropy parameter delta is much more uh, uh, kind of elaborate to explain, uh, much less intuitive. I don't want to really spend yeah, no, time. that's okay. Oh no, yeah,
1: yeah, no, we uh, we could do this for three more days with you. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are probably with running. every
0: single slide. Yeah, too.
1: we are running out of time, and hopefully, we, we might get the opportunity to to have the chance to go in into other details of of what we get as far as feedback and information from learning from this episode. Right. Um, I I would like to maybe spend just a little bit of time uh, to end this with. You've been looking at seismic data and you've been looking at the heterogeneity in particular to geology, to the rock in the subsurface for a long time. Right. What are some of the the best descriptions and ideas that you've heard from geologists, people who have tried to understand depositional environments and what's controlling the heterogeneity in particular?
3: Right. Uh, Well, as far as uh, geological questions are concerned, I'm probably not the best expert to be talking (laughs) to uh, because my geological education was pretty limited in my uh, history and most of the stuff that I learned uh, about the geology uh, actually from my colleagues next door and from friends uh, and uh, and colleagues. So I'm not a professional geologist, uh, you can tell that uh, my extent uh, is limited to, say, thicknesses, the minerals, petrographies, you know, uh, that genesis. Uh, I, I have pretty good understanding of the petrography because uh, as a rock physicist, you just have to understand mm-hmm. the petrography of the rock. Unfortunately, there are many rock physicists uh, that uh, came from the total mathematical physics mm-hmm. uh, provinces, and they really don't understand what the rocks are made of, and so they believe that all the sandstones are made equal and they're composed of 100% quartz. Uh, definitely we should appreciate that this is not the case. So there's much more uh, mineralogical diversity in these sandstones. So that diagenesis makes uh, its own differences, right? So Mm -hmm. we start with the very high porosity sandstones at the mud line, and then you go through the compaction, mechanical compaction, followed by the chemical diagenesis, and you end up with a porosity such as those that we've just discussed, with a porosity of about 10% or lower. And even those are, Uh, You know, good oil, oil, gas targets uh, in the conventional sense of the word. So, but what makes, uh, to answer this question uh, about um, the impact of geology here, so I I, I still refer to the organic richness of these materials as being uh, the most complex issue to be uh, tackled right, and so so uh, the more accurate the more accurate is our understanding of the distribution of organic matter and its thermal maturity in these formations, uh, the better uh, our ability to interpret these materials, and the better uh, is our uh, 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 ability to complete them in a, in, a, in a proper and right way, and define the sweet spot in a proper and right mm-hmm. way. So I would say that uh, uh, this uh, the kerogen richness is uh, and the distribution of kerogen. You can see from this slide that right. uh, most of the kerogen uh, is uh, sandwiched between the, the non-kerogen mineral uh, portions and phases of mm-hmm. the rock and create some kind of a, a la- semi-laminar structure and texture that is that actually accounts for that strong Ti anisotropy I was talking about. So everything is interrelated here. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I would conclude that in this type of rocks especially, uh, the devil in the detail is, is probably the, 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 the best logo and the best uh, model that we should have. So yeah. so no details should be, uh, should be gone unnoticed. Right. And so the more we understand these rocks Even the small details sometimes make a huge amount of difference.
1: 100%.
3: And
0: I I think the way, the direction that rock physics is going, I believe that it's kind of the forefront on visualizing these changes within the reservoir, more so than just about any other kind of, right. you know, cross, yeah.
1: Extremely helpful for a geologist too. Because the oh, geologist wow. is trying to go on to, We're going to sleep going, what is going on with the heterogeneity? Yeah. And we have to come up with that model and come up with that idea. And you guys are giving us visuals based on sound science and yeah. really understanding, okay, that's what it is. That is that is the distribution of the TOC and the kerogen. So what drove that? What chain, What made that change and thinning out in that direction and all that stuff? That's where geologists and rock physicists can come together and increase the recovery factor problem. Right. 100%. Uh, the last question for me, you guys might have some questions. Last question for me, if uh, if you could... Do I get $20 million? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you, if oh, you I'll could I'll change see. or improve in a, in a perfect world, any part of acquiring seismic waves from the earth... Seismic to, data. Seismic data. Mm-hmm. If you can improve our ability to image the subsurface, what would it be? How would you do that? Is it the size vibes? Is it the receivers? Is it the technology? Is it screw sound well, waves? We, we are, need to do something The different. seismic
3: technology over the last uh, 20, 30 years made significant progress. But
1: that's just computing power, really, right?
3: Uh, not only. The acquisition, too. I mean, sometimes we are able to acquire frequencies unheard of before. Mm. Uh, our seismic uh, wavelengths that were uh, primarily sitting in the seismic signal were very, very narrow band. 20, 30 Mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. They are much more broadband. They go from, say, sometimes three, four, five hertz all the way to 50 hertz. Sure, That's that's very good news. So that uh, lends itself to a very high quality inversion of the data in terms of the acoustic and shear impedances. Of course, you have to uh, understand the limitations because uh, we are talking about the seismic you know, bandwidth, which allows you to resolve layers, say 50 feet and above, Sure. but rarely be much as significantly below that. Right. And so you somehow you have to uh, do a lot of upscaling if you're a geologist right. and you're looking at the well logs and the core data. So you have to know how to do the upscaling right. of your properties and observations to those uh, bandwidths Visuals, that yeah. you are looking Our at when uh, in, in the seismic data. Yeah. So the the marriage is somewhere in between. I do know. We gotta get it.
1: Make we have to make it better. We can't. Seismic has to get better. How can it get better?
3: Well, uh, we we the seismic uh, acquisition companies are really pushing uh, hard uh, hard way uh, in terms of the uh, the broadband expansion, the the band expansion. So as I said, yeah. In the marine seismic, for example, where the noise level. And uh, the flatness of the Earth, and there's no ground roll, so-called. You know, we were able to acquire uh, uh, frequencies as low as three, four, right. uh, five Flat. hertz, very yeah. often, uh, which is very, very low. Uh, as unfortunately, yeah. in land surveys, uh, it's it's still a big, big issue. Right. But uh, but on the other hand we are gaining on the high frequency end with uh, our land surveys so so it's all boils down to to discriminating between the useful signal and the noise mm-hmm. in the seismic data A mm-hmm. lot of stuff in the seismic data unfortunately is a noise. right I hear that a
1: lot yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. when you remove that are you removing physical things that are actually there well and, you, you right. hope not because right. uh,
3: yeah very often uh, let's say uh, uh, talking about the ado you probably heard about the AVO processing that uh, mm-hmm. some service uh, service companies are engaging in. So what they take, uh, they take the seismic product, right? And they try to make it AVO ready. And so with that, what they will give you, and they will refer to as preserved AVO signature of the seismic data. Well, how do they preserve it is a big question. Yeah. It's a know-how in each specific company. It's not a worldwide accepted workflow, unfortunately, yet. So you just, you just hope to go with the, uh, the service company, which is probably the best uh, history, uh, best uh, uh, record mm-hmm. of, uh, of showing- Improvements. I- improvements yeah. and, uh, and
1: consistency in it. Wow. Well, guys, do you have any questions before we go off? I think we're good. Is that it? I think that's <laughs> it. Did we just sit down with Dr. Lev Vernick and run through Rock Physics 101 for the entire industry to soak in?
3: Well, My- we devoted just a little bit of to rock physics. I, I tried <laughs> to convey yeah. the, I conveyed the, uh, the 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 notion that the rock physics is just a, a central piece of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it relates uh, geology to seismic. It relates seismic to geomechanics. It relates pore pressure to engineering uh, yeah. to engineering and wow. everything else. So it's it's kind of in the
0: middle. Mm-hmm. It's really that crossing guard. I in- like exactly. yeah. that the
1: crossing that's a, guard. That's yeah.
3: exactly right. It's a good term.
1: Yeah, you just coined. Just going. Yeah, and Crossing <laughs> Guard. <laughs> Dr. Verdict. thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. It was thank an you. honor. Yeah. Thank uh, you.
0: And on that note, we're out. We're out. This episode of PBE is sponsored by Icon Science. They are developing pioneering software such as RockDoc and iPoint, along with their other geoscience service solutions. Innovation is the heart of Icon Science's award-winning subsurface technology for geoprediction. Joint impedance and facies inversion help customers unlock superior outcomes in both unconventional and conventional reservoirs, while iPoint provides big data solutions. For more information on geoprediction and data solutions, please contact Icon Science America's office at 713-914-0300 or email info at iconscience.com.